0: Welcome to the How Not to Screw Up Your Kids podcast. So, pour yourself a cuppa, find a comfy seat, and enjoy the conversation. This is episode 45, and today I'm doing something a little different. I'm answering four listener questions which cover areas such as ADHD and autism, teen friendships, death, and a fear of flying. Now, your child or children or teens might not be struggling with the exact same challenges, but I can guarantee you will get some very useful tips from listening. I want to thank the four that have sent their questions in, and I'm just going to remind you, and I will do so again at the end, that if you have got any questions that you would like me to answer, then please, please do contact us at contact at drmaryhan.com and you will be featured either as part of one of these listener question podcast episodes or we will look at answering your specific question as a podcast episode in its own right so here goes we're going to start with Emma's question
1: dear Mary Han my eldest son has shown some signs of ADHD defiance and possible low-level autism since he was young he doesn't have a diagnosis as his behavior in school is exemplary It's when he's in the company of myself, husband and siblings that we often have undesirable behaviour if he feels frustrated. As a young child, he had exhausting meltdowns which would take a long time for him to come down from, usually ending with us both sobbing. Although he's much better now, he can still have episodes of fierce defiance, particularly with myself and his sibling, especially his sister. I'm aware my behaviour has an impact. I'm often tired, snappy and don't have the headspace to deal with friction and challenges. I feel very exhausted quickly. When they present challenging behaviour, especially upsetting as I feel so much guilt and sadness for my daughter, who has to listen to the boys' dominating behaviour for years. She is so easy and laid back. Any help or advice would be most appreciated.
0: Right, so there's a lot to answer here, and I'm really hoping. uh, Obviously, I've listened to these questions before and I've bullet pointed a few sort of responses that I want to have, and it may well be that after I've answered the questions, I might think of yet more, but I really hope that this is going to be useful and in no particular order I guess this is this would be my response now it's quite common whether I'm going to talk specifically about the things that you've talked about about ADHD and potential autism and managing emotions but generally speaking for everyone who's listening our children typically behave much more impeccably at school now that doesn't mean that our children are unruly but they're very aware of the rules and the structure and the framework that is around school and they're often very keen to please their teachers they want to hear they want to get praise they want to be good and make good choices at school so it is really normal for our children to be impeccably behaved at school and for us to then get an outpouring of their emotions and their, the difficulties in terms of managing those emotions so I want to address that one first to Emma because I don't want you to feel that you're doing anything wrong your child is behaving as what I would typically expect and that'll be the same for a lot of you so that's the first thing I want to say now I know that you've touched on this in part of your question but I think the first thing that I would say and it pretty consistent with the way that I tend to approach things is i think one of the really important things that you must make sure that you do is constantly checking in on you now without apportioning blame because that's not what i'm doing here but it's super important that you get the support you need for yourself so that you're then better able to support your son. And that might be, Emma, about support in terms of support through school. It might be about just a listening ear with a friend. It might be about making sure that you take care of yourself by having some self-care time and prioritising your needs as well. So that goes without saying. And that isn't to say that you are responsible for the way that your child is managing his emotions. It's just simply saying that when you're responding to some of these behaviours from a place of lack, from a place of exhaustion, from a place of depletion, you won't always make the best choices for all of you in that moment. So it's so important. I mean, it's important for all of us to be doing as parents, but I think when we've got a child who might be experiencing some specific challenges, then I think it's even more so. Now, let me talk about this So I know that you've talked about this idea that potentially ADHD, defiance and autism. So I just want to talk briefly around that. And I'm going to be super honest about my view of these things. So ADHD is characterized by impulsive behavior, um, difficulties in terms of impulse control um, and high energy if we're talking about ADHD so the difference between add and adhd is both of them have attention deficit so difficulties in terms of concentrating and absorbing information and staying on task the difference between the two is that adhd has hyperactivity linked with it so if you're a parent listening to this you know that hopefully that helps in terms of the distinction. In terms of a diagnosis being made, so a child being given a diagnosis that they either have attention deficit disorder or they have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, what needs to happen is that the ev- the behaviour needs to be evidenced across two settings. I don't know the situation here, Emma, and it may well be that school are seeing some of this attention deficit. But the, generally they've got a framework that manages it. But a child will not be diagnosed with ADHD or ADD if they are evidencing the behaviour only in one setting. So if they're like that at school, but they're not like that at home or they're like that at home, but they're not like that at school, then it won't be ADD or ADHD. So that's the first thing autism and or asperger's is usually associated with social difficulties so this might be around social situations it might be around picking up on social cues it might be around anxieties which relate to those social situations amongst other things and obviously the defiance thing could be a whole host of other things in terms of oppositional defiance and and other things so what i would say just because that you kind of use some of those labels and for those of you that are listening as well is I personally full disclosure I'm not a huge fan of children being given diagnoses unless it's really key to them accessing support and let me just explain to you why this doesn't mean that I don't recognize that there's ADHD autism Asperger's absolutely do my concern sometimes with these labels is that what it can do is it can lead to slightly self fulfilling prophecies in the in the children then almost use that as a mechanism to create a reality that they're not able to manage certain situations because of their diagnosis i think that we can put in lots of support for children on an assumption that they have adhd or add or aspergers or autism or dyslexia or dyspraxia or dyscalculia we can do all of that we can put mechanisms in place we can put the support we know this we know what works and what helps these children and we can put those mechanisms in place without necessarily needing the diagnosis however depending on where you are in the world depending on the type of school that your child is in will massively impact how easy it is for them to access resources access additional support and access structured plans and sort of interventions if they don't have a diagnosis so what i would say is so you talked about you checking in on you i would then consider the pros and cons that are specific for your family as to whether you go down a diagnosis route now it may well be that you've already had these discussions emma but this is helpful for other people who might be also in this situation because obviously that can if you do go down a diagnosis route because you're able to access more support then that can potentially help you access some specific family support or it might just be that your child is showing some of these behaviours that might fall under these broader umbrellas but actually you're looking at putting support mechanisms in place without the diagnosis but I do think there is a an opportunity here and there's probably a discussion to be have around whether you go down that diagnosis route or whether you don't go the diagnosis route what I'm going to talk about now in terms of the other things the other aspects of the advice that I would give are much more around whether you go diagnosis route or you don't go diagnosis route we need to start putting some things in place we need to start helping and supporting and my I guess my pondering and it's always difficult when we have the when questions come in because you can't we're not having a conversation so I can't ask you to sort of elaborate on certain things but one of the things that I'm wondering is that whether the framework at school in terms of predictability in terms of a specific structure is particularly helpful for your son and that's why the behavior is different at school or it could have absolutely nothing to do with that it could simply be this real deep desire and drive to make sure that he conforms within what's what's deemed appropriate and what's not deemed appropriate. But I think that it's worth exploring and having a look at that because life at home is unpredictable. All sorts of things happen. We don't have that relative structure in the same way as our children have at school. But if we've got a child who's struggling to manage their emotions, and particularly these big emotions, sometimes an element of structure and predictability, without being rigid, we're not going to create these rigid frameworks at home, but sometimes a little bit more of that structure can be really helpful for them. So I definitely think that that's also worth considering. And then working on specific ways of helping him with his in terms of managing his emotions so i would do a couple of things here i'd liaise with school to find out i'm a really strong believer that we should be working with schools as well you know we're part of a big community here that are helping and supporting children so i think it's really important that we have those conversations when things aren't working let's have conversations with school about how we can help each other And when things seem to be working at school, but not necessarily at home, I think it's really important that we communicate that. So liaise with school and find out what is it that they feel is working specifically there. And you may well be surprised that they may not even realise that some of this behaviour is happening at home. And we shouldn't be embarrassed or ashamed about it. We should be saying, look, this is what the challenges that we're having at home. And I'm really keen to find out how you are, what you're doing at school that is helping and supporting him. So we can look at to see whether there's any of that that we can model at home because that continuity is a really big thing. It's really, really helpful for children. And what I would also say, so you're liaising with school and then you're helping to put specific practices in that helps him to manage his emotions. And at the base level, it's about helping him understand to be able to label and articulate how he is feeling so being able to label that he's angry frustrated irritated worried nervous scared excited and then also looking at specific things in terms of what other when he feels this way when he's experiencing these big emotions problem solving what he needs to do for himself so this is the specific episode that we talked about managing emotions so it's when i feel dot 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 i may dot 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 i need dot 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 so this idea of when i feel angry i may what are the behaviors what what might i exhibit as an individual when i'm angry so that i know as an as somebody observing how would i know that you're angry so it's when i feel angry i may and then what they need so when you're feeling angry and you are doing x y and z what do you need And remember, with the need, we're trying to encourage our children not only to say what they need that requires a third party, another person, but also what do they need for themselves? How can they help themselves in those moments? How can they manage those emotions? How can they make different choices that help them? So we're helping them problem solve. So I think that's one bit, but I would also say don't underestimate how sibling dynamics also play a part one of the things that you mentioned emma when you in your particular question is obviously the ease with which his sister is managing her emotions and how easy she is and this is relevant for all parents when we're having a when a child is struggling with something whether that's friendships whether they're struggling with their confidence whether they're struggling with their academic work or managing their emotions as human beings we are social animals we compare And in our family, we have a comparison on tap 24-7. So if he's struggling to manage his emotions, he will be very aware that his sibling, that his sister isn't, and that may be playing into it too. So it's being aware about any differential in terms of the way that you respond to each of those, to each of them, and how that might be fueling within him this element of comparison or him not being quite good enough or him being naughty or him being the one that can't manage his emotions so i think that that's one aspect of it but i also think emma i need to speak to the point that you've made about worrying about his sister Um, and you might that might come out in some of your behavior but what i would say is important is that you create time for your daughter and help her understand what might be happening for her brother and what she might need to do for herself when things feel overwhelming. So part of that is about having a conversation with her about her brother, and that you know sometimes he finds it difficult to manage those emotions, his emotions, and sometimes that this is the, this might show in this way, and it doesn't mean that he doesn't care or he doesn't love or that he's being naughty. It's just we all develop and mature in different ways at different times. So we're having a compassionate explanation to her as to what is happening because so often in these situations we feel guilty because our time we're being pulled in multiple different directions and we're struggling to kind of keep you know we're trying to you know we're trying to feel like we're being fair to each child and then we feel guilty about it so part of it is that explanation but part of it is also having a conversation with her in these moments when this happens what can you do for yourself so empowering her to know what she might be able to do for herself in those moments, that eases the tension. Because she knows, and certainly that's part of the explanation, that that moment will pass, that he won't always feel like that, that he won't be caught up in that emotion for that period of time. But that in those moments that she might find that upsetting or challenging or difficult, and asking her to really think about in those moments what might she then do for herself... That might be particularly helpful. And obviously, then creating time for her, maybe carving out some specific time that you can do things together, but also carving time out for him. So, Emma, I hope that that answers your question. And I hope for a lot of you that there'll be some really sort of useful tips and strategies within that. But, Emma, I would love it if you're able to come back to us and also let us know whether that was useful because it's always helpful. And if I've missed something or I've caught the wrong end of the stick with something, then I'm really happy to hop back on and, and sort of elaborate a little bit more. So that was Emma's question. Now for Ali's question.
1: Dear Mary Han, I'm a little stuck with how to help my eldest daughter who's 14 years old with a friendship situation at school. She has a lovely group of friends, normal healthy friendships where they do lots together as well as individually. This week, however, they were all invited to a party apart from my daughter. One of the girls from a group was asked to put a list of people together for the boy who was hosting the party, and he had a total of 20 people, which included all of her friendship group apart from her. A messaging group was set up for the 20 who were invited. Unknowingly, someone added my daughter to the list, thinking she must have been missed off by mistake. However, in the chat, someone said, There's someone in this group who shouldn't have been here. You weren't invited. As you can imagine, she was mortified, embarrassed and quickly left the group. She's now extremely sad and doesn't understand why she's been excluded when they usually all do everything together or in smaller groups. They just never leave one person out. She's worried about an up-and-coming residential trip as part of a Duke of Edinburgh and she thinks that no one would choose her to be in a group with. I've suggested she tells her friends that she is sad and about what happened and how it's made her feel, but I don't think she's got the confidence now as it's taken a huge hit. I don't know how to help her and I'm worried. I'd really appreciate any advice that you can offer. Thank you.
0: Gosh, it's heartbreaking, Ali, when those sorts of things happen. And to be honest with you, it's, there's no right or wrong answer here. Specifically, it is heartbreaking when these things happen. And I, I'm, my answer is working around a couple of not necessarily assumptions. Let me Let me explain what I'm thinking. So heartbreaking as this is, we want to keep this one incident specifically from, I'm going to be play slightly devil's advocate. So the first kind of response I'm having is trying to keep it, this one incident in perspective relative to all the other good things about that particular friendship group. So it's having that conversation around placing that within a broader broader perspective is the first thing that I would do. The second thing is, what's really important is we don't want our children to get stuck. It's almost like an old record that gets played, that they get stuck in, that they keep drawing themselves back into. It's not to say that we want to brush it under the carpet and it's like, goodness sake, just move on from it. But it is really important that we empower them to make some decisions about it and then to move on. So what is an important next step is to discuss her options. So what are her options? This thing has happened this incident has happened and there might be a bit of space now with it, but hopefully it's not too um, long after the event to go back and, and talk this through. But what are her options? And it may be one of her options might be to tell her friend, her friends how she feels. Another option could be that she just draws a line under the whole incident and just it's happened and then she's moving on. Maybe another option is to talk to one particular close friend about how it made her feel And then working through that one another option may well be to nurture other friendships there's lots of particular options but i think it's really important that you almost have that conversation that problem solving conversation of let's talk about all you know this is what's happened this is how it's made you feel right now what are the options i think ali your advice about her using her voice to communicate to her friends how it made her feel is a really good one and that would be my natural inclination but I think what we need to do is we need to almost coach her to come up with her all of the possible options that she has and then which one is the best option that she feels that she's able to kind of implement right now and it may well be that she doesn't feel comfortable or confident enough to have that conversation and she's, and therefore she's ready to draw the line, but what we're trying to avoid is that it, she constantly gets pulled back into this, because that will affect how she behaves with them, what she does, and of course it's making her anxious, she's got her Duke of Edinburgh, and in her mind what's happened, and the way that it was handled was atrocious, but in her mind that's, that's had a huge knock to her confidence, and to I guess this friendship group that she would have banked on and would never have questioned is now creating a few little a few of these sort of particular challenges the next thing I would talk about and this is where I'm going to be slightly devil's advocate is the fact that it's having conversations about the nature of friendships and that friendships can change now she's 14 and potentially and I could have got the wrong end of the stick here in terms of boys being involved and that there was a party is that obviously the dynamics of friendships change and whilst that that she's had this really good friendship group there might be a little bit now of um, power play amongst some of the people within the group Uh, and it may well be that there's an that there's an element of possibly fragmenting of the larger group personalities possibly even jealousy and a lot of these sorts of dynamics that happen they're normal parts of teen but you get this like jostling for position and popularity and a whole host of other things so i guess my question is is this very if this is very out of character then in lots of ways that first strategy about getting perspective on it relative to other things is really really important yet it could equally be that this is the beginning of some jostling within the friendships where actually what we want to do with our child and this is really important for anyone else who's listening to this about friendships because it happens at 14 15 16 but it equally happens when our children are eight nine ten the whole friendships things these things happen all of the time And it's helping our children understand that the nature of friendships change over time and it's helping our children see that the tight friendship group that they had or the friendship that they had particularly with one friend or two friends, that that is going to naturally change and evolve and that there are going to be certain friends that we will have for specific periods of our life and for specific reasons that we may not necessarily have long term so it's this notion that we might have the friends that we talk to about everything and anything we might have the good time friends we might have the friends that we partner up with academically when we want to revise but they're not necessarily the same friends that we would go shopping with or necessarily the same friends that we might go on a holiday with so part of what you might need to be doing Ali is a broader conversation around that friendships change and some of that is almost getting our children to reflect back on the friends that they had maybe when they were six or seven and eight and the sort of games and things that they like to play then and then get them to think about The friendships that they have now and the things that they like to do now and how that has changed and evolved and whilst they change and evolve as individuals it'll be exactly the same for their friends and so naturally some friendships will stand the test of time and will be will be tight and will always be there and other friendships have almost served their time that you've moved on your character your personality has changed and therefore, what was really tight is no longer. And so that might be a particularly important thing to talk about, Ali. And again, it just it just depends whether I'm being mischievous, which I don't think I am, but it would be great if you can equally, like I said for Emma, if you can come back to us. If it's out of perspective, you know, if it's really unusual and there's no power dynamics going on in the friendships then it's all about perspective my suspicion is it's probably more than that in which case we need to go deeper and we need to accept that if it is that power play that your daughter and our children will naturally also go through grieving processes for friendships that they may grieve a friendship that was there that was solid that was robust that was their security their comfort blanket which is no longer there So we need to sort of help and support our children with that. So Ali, I hope that that question is helpful, that that response, sorry, is helpful, but do come back. It's so I love to kind of, you know, I know obviously I'm sat at home in Hampshire talking to my mic and and sort of recording this. But I try to imagine that you're kind of with me and that I'm talking to an audience. So it's great if I can get all of your feedback on it as well. So that would be wonderful. So that was Ali's question. Now, let's move on to Cynthia's question. Dear Mary-Han, My 12-year-old
1: daughter has recently been asking about death, being scared about dying, concerned about her elderly grandparents, asking if heaven exists, what will happen if you die, and if she will see my father in heaven, as he died unfortunately before my daughter was born. I've explained to her that this is a natural part of the life cycle, and it's unlikely that we will pass away, but the questions still come up every so often. I would love your perspective on how to best approach this subject with my daughter. I do remember having similar thoughts about being scared of dying
0: when I was her age. Now, Cynthia, your question is probably going to be really, well, in fact, all of the questions have been really relevant to lots of people. So let's talk about it in a really broad, broad sense. So I think I've probably made a couple of notes and things that I would talk about. So I think the first thing I would say is it's normal for children to ask questions around death. Now, something specific may have triggered it. So a specific thing that they've either heard about or seen or has been talked about at school. Or it might just be a typical developmental stage where they're questioning life. I can still I can remember quite vividly having very philosophical discussions in my own head about whether I was real and whether I truly existed and whether I was some apparition. So these are all really, really normal. So I would say try not to read too much into it or try and delve too much into what's prompted it, especially if it's not obvious. Obviously, if there's an obvious reason and your child talks about it, then great. But if there is no obvious reason, then don't worry. What we should be doing instead is focusing in on filling in the blanks. That's the first thing. And for a lot of you that are listening to this, where you probably would have a similar question, it is this notion of it's normal for children to ask about death. If it's a specific, it's in response to a specific incident, then we obviously need to address and ask questions, you know, answer their questions about that, but we also should be looking broader at filling in the gaps. Talking about death and grief is often something that we feel particularly uncomfortable with, in much of the same way as we've had previous episodes where we've talked about pornography, you know, we often shy away from subjects that we find particularly difficult or or we find uncomfortable, but it's really important that we have those. So if there's a specific reason, absolutely start there, but don't be afraid to expand. If there is no specific reason, then I think it's just about, you know, let's fill in the blanks. And so my second point would be, don't shy away from having this conversation and you might start with a I mean I know you've been asked questions and um, Cynthia but I would almost go back to it at some point and say look I've noticed that you're asking questions about death dying and what happens once we die and I want to make sure I answer as many of these for you as I can as honestly as I can then either sit down with them then and there or arrange a time to sit down with them and answer their questions and if if it's not convenient at that time and obviously it depends on your child it may be appropriate for their age to say well why don't you jot down some of the questions that you've got it may not be appropriate so obviously that just depends but what I would say is it's really important that we're honest and that we shouldn't be afraid to say when we don't know the answer and that we shouldn't sort of try to untruthfully reassure our children i'm not even sure if untruthfully is a real word but what i'm saying is because talking about death is uncomfortable because we don't want our children to worry that we're not going to be around to take care of them which for young children is you know this great fear of abandonment is quite often what triggers these questions around death for our children because actually it's not about death per se but it's this notion that we might not always be around to take care of them so I don't think it's useful to untruthfully reassure our children say oh I'm all I'm going to outlive you or I'm going to be here to see you married and get and have children and get a job and buy a house because we don't know that but we can say that we have all intentions of living to a, lo- a long age and that we're making sure that we take care of ourselves that's okay but we have to be honest with our children that sometimes you know some people die do die unexpectedly and that these things happen and that we shouldn't be afraid to use honest language rather than this notion goes back to the conversations that we've had around pornography using anatomically correct terminology. It should be the same with death. We shouldn't be talking about people going to sleep because in essence, that's not what it is, but that the people are no longer with us. They have died, they have passed on. We don't know necessarily what happens. Obviously, the conversation that you're going to have about death will also be impacted by your own faith by your own religious beliefs and your own religious practices so it's also going to be framed around that aspect but i do think it's important to be broad in that you know this we believe because we've raised you as a Christian, as a Muslim, as a, and, you know, within the framework of Judaism, Sikhism, Hinduism, we've raised you, or even atheism, this is the way that we've raised you, but other cultures, other religions would view it as this. And we don't, we don't know. So let's not be scared to have, to kind of talk to our children about that, but let's use language around the fact that they're not going to be there. And when we're, we see grief, and when we see people mourning or that we see that there are funerals, let's not be afraid to have those discussions with our children. And particularly when we're seeing scenarios with war, that we shouldn't be afraid to use that as an opportunity to talk about death and how that might impact. Particularly because I think we need to be framing it within the perspective that a lot of children's anxieties and worries relate to them being this sort of abandonment that they're not That then there's not going to be anyone there to necessarily take care of them and obviously we temper it we temper the language depending on their age but that in essence is what 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 i would say cynthia and i'm hoping that answers your question i know that there's things like answering questions around heaven and you might have to frame that within a our religious belief believes that there is this other faiths believe this and, that you know, as they get older and they acquire more knowledge, they may then get their own view. This question about whether they're going to see your father in heaven. Again, don't, you know, don't be afraid to sort of put your own view. You know, my view is I would love to think that you are going to meet them, but actually we don't really know. For example, I don't think we should be afraid to talk around death and to have those honest conversations with our children about it, and but to also temper it with a, a we don't really know, or this this is our belief, this is my belief, uh, but as you get older, you might have different ones. So again, Cynthia, I hope that that is helpful, but please, please do um, write in and let us know, let me know, because it's really helpful for me, and hopefully for lots of you as well, that that's a really helpful question too. So that was Cynthia's question and now the final question is from Maria
1: dear Mary Han my 10 year old daughter was never a huge fan of flying but it wasn't an issue for her to get on a plane unfortunately this has changed with our recent travels she was very anxious even before entering the plane with unstoppable crying she got upset before we even boarded the plane and the takeoff was absolutely awful with her sobbing I've just never seen her like this before She eventually calmed down once we were up in the air, although I don't think she actually left her seat during the seven-hour flight. Afterwards, we talked and we asked her what makes her so worried. She told us she is afraid that the plane will crash. As much as we try to talk about the flying, how unlikely it is that something may happen, we even have a friend who is a pilot who can explain all the technical things to her in more detail. I worry that once we get to the airport, we will have the same trauma again. We're due to fly soon, and she's already mentioned repeatedly that she doesn't want to fly. We live overseas, so in order to fly back to see family, we need to get her on a plane. If you have any tips for us as parents on what we can do to make this easier for her, we would be grateful. Thank you.
0: Right, so Maria's question, I think, Maria, I'm going to answer your question very specifically to your daughter's fear of flying. But what I will say is if you're listening to this, you can use these strategies for anything that your child feels anxious or worried about to help them overcome what i would say maria that you might want to potentially consider i don't know what your time frames are in terms of when you're next necessarily going to be flying but airlines themselves do have specific programs and courses that people can go on in terms of that fear of flying because in essence what we're looking at is a You know, the fear of flying, particularly in these sorts of things, is is an anxiety. It can be particularly sort of almost named like a phobia. It's an irrational fear. Now, we don't know, doesn't seem certainly from your question, Maria, to be clear that there's a specific cause. So it's not like your daughter has been in a specific flight where something bad has happened or that she's seen something but it may well be part of a developmental stage so in the way that we've talked about Cynthia's question in terms of children reaching a developmental age where they're aware that life is finite it may well be that your daughter has reached that similar sort of thing and then has then that's then come up necessary with flying or it could be that one of the flights that you've had recently there was turbulence and that made her feel uncomfortable coupled with that developmental we don't need to know what caused it or what triggered it specifically to help and support move her on so what i would say is i've talked about this before but let me talk about it again it's this notion of the seesaw so when our children are in a situation where they feel comfortable and confident Their seesaw is in balance. So, on one side of the seesaw, what they perceive perceive is the key word here are the demands being placed on them by situation are equally matched and met in balance by what they perceive are the resources they have within them to manage it. So, this is our lovely, perfectly balanced seesaw. So, your daughter will feel super confident in some situations, and her seesaw will be balanced. When this whole notion of flying, even the discussion, I suspect now, of flying, that seesaw tips. So what she perceives are the demands being placed on her by you asking her to get on an aeroplane and go somewhere, are so heavy, are so unbelievably, she's not capable of managing, are so heavy compared to what she perceives are the resources that she has to be able to cope with it and that's where we get the imbalance that's where we get the fear that's where we get the anxiety that's where we get the worry so what we need to be looking at doing maria is giving her help now in readiness for your next flight so helping her practice and create and pull together her own bespoke toolkit ready for her to be able to use in the, when you then have the next flight and i would sort of talk back again about the analogy that I've used about this idea of a ladder so a ladder is used to get from somewhere that you are to somewhere that you want to be so we to put a ladder up against a building to get to a window that we want to clean or to get up to an attic that we want to um, get some things from and that's exactly the same the thing that we want to use to help and support your daughter so I want you to imagine this ladder the top rung of the ladder is your daughter being able to confidently fly, get on an aeroplane and be able to cope with the flight. The bottom rung of the ladder is where she is now. So full of fear, full of anxiety, too scared and the idea of it creates this panic. So what we're really looking at doing is giving her some strategies to help manage the physiological response. So again, we've got so many free resources in the resource library to go back and have a look at that. Help her understand where these feelings, just even discussing the idea of getting on a plane, Maria, I suspect is probably creating a whole load of fear and anxiety. She may well have sweaty palms, her heart might be beating faster, she might have a Butterflies in her stomach, or it just feels like her stomach is making somersaults and that she feels sick. Whatever it is, it's understanding those physiological symptoms and how it manifests in her body. And this is the same for our children. They might not be scared of flying, they might be scared of putting their hands up in class and getting something wrong. They might be scared of going to an after school club. They might be scared um, of going into school. They might be scared of going on a school residential or a sleepover. It's all about perception. It's how our child sees the situation. So for your child, getting on an aeroplane has so much fear around the idea of it crashing, but it's no different to a child who might be so scared of going into school because they're worried that people might not talk to them or they might not be able to cope with the day or they're too far away from you and you're not there. The intensity of the feeling is the same. We mustn't try and rationalise it or put our logical brain to it because anxiety, that fear, is not rational. It's not logical. It is that intense fear for our child and we need to respond to it in that way. And the first step is helping them find strategies that help manage that physiological response, that help take them from that fight or flight much more to that level rest and restore. So if we can help them with that and start teaching them some of those techniques, that helps at the bottom rung of the ladder. And then the other aspect that I would say, Maria, that would be helpful is then looking at some of the internal chatter. We've talked about the ogre, the critic, the voice that's saying, but what if it crashes? It's too scary. Yeah, that chatter, it's helping her be aware of what that internal chatter is and then trying to tap into the other side yes logically we can give her all of the statistics about i think the stats might be something like you're more likely to be um, run over by a car than you are actually to experience to be in a plane crash but when she's in fear response when she's in a full anxiety she's not going to be able to access that so we need to do all of the work in that preparation so that we can help her that way and that's the same for all of our children. Whenever they're experiencing anything in terms of anxiety, so Maria, I'm hoping that that has helped you and at least given you a starting point. If you feel if you're sort of struggling with a child who's anxious and you feel that you're probably a little bit beyond, you know, there's a you've tried lots of different things and you need a bit of hand holding, then obviously then you do come back to us and we've got we do actually have a membership where there's lots of resources and lots of hand-holding support and lots of me each week um, with live question and answer sessions. so that might be relevant that might be appropriate for you that might be what you need right now as a bit more of a hand-holding but there are lots of free resources equally to get you started but if you feel that do you know what I've listened to your podcast Mary Han um, and I've worked through the free resources but I feel like I could do with a bit of hand-holding then the membership may well be the best next step for you so this week, there are no specific gifts, as in specific to each question, because there are so many free resources that capitalize and actually address a lot of the questions that we've had. So I'm simply going to remind you of all the free resources already available in my podcast library, covering everything from confidence, friendships, anxiety, managing emotions, parenting, you name it. So I would remind you to head over to my free resource library, drmaryhan.com forward slash library, where you'll find the link to download all these resources and so much more. All you need to do is pop in your email address and you will get instant access to all of the resources across all my 45 podcast episodes. So do head over there. If you have found this episode particularly helpful, then why not send in your question to us at contact at drmaryhand.com. I answer every question I am sent, either in an episode all by itself or one of these new style listener question episodes. Your question will not only give you some helpful tips, but I know it will help hundreds of other parents all over the globe who are experiencing the exact same challenges. As ever, if you have enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you could follow and review this podcast so that others can find us and we can spread the love. So until next time...